And that's the same is true for every single one of us as a Christian. What we believe about God and about faith and about life all inform how we live and the degree of which that we believe it and that we hold to it is going to directly affect the way in which we live. That's true for all of us. And I want us to think about that because John in first John chapter three is going to say something very similar to that today about that belief and what you believe and how you believe it is going to dictate how you live. And it's of the utmost importance what he's going to say. You know, we say here often about discipleship. Discipleship is growing in obedience to God in every area of our life. Right? Moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our life through what God has told us. And so we're saying we want to be growing in faith as it then plays out in our life and we live that way. So what John's going to say here is vitally important to what we say is the mission of the church of making disciples that make disciples. And so three things I want us to consider with what he says here in 1 John chapter 3. And the first is this. Every single one of us is going to base our life on something. And John is going to say very clearly here, there's only two roads. There's really only two ways. And every single one of us falls into one of those categories. And ultimately, one of those choices leads to destruction and one leads to life. But he's going to divide it into two categories and nothing else. And we're all basing it on one. Secondly, the thing I want us to consider is the way you live alerts you to what you're basing your life on. And I want us to think about how that is. And then lastly, how do we grow into the one that brings us life? If there's really only two ways, Scripture's telling us here, how do we grow into the one that brings life? And so let's start with just this idea that we're all basing our life on something. Pick up with me in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 9 this morning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so do you hear it there as he says it? He says there's two options. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And I realize as I say that, and the first thing that we say is, is you're coming to this fork in the road in this book that First John is talking about, that we all desperately, that we are all sinners, we desperately need a Savior, the Savior is Jesus, that if we confess our sins, He saves us, He brings us to this, and then He says, this is what it looks like, that if you've come to this saving relationship and you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. He brings us to this fork in the road. And I realize as I say that, as we come to that, and you say there's only these two ways to see it, that that can be a very inflammatory statement, especially in our culture. That there's only two ways to see this, what Scripture says. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. Now, it's more nuanced than that in the sense of there's a whole lot of things that fall under those two categories and how we see it. But ultimately, he's saying if we distill it down, there's really only those two ways. That's all there is. Child of God or a child of the devil. And so I want us to think about what exactly that means. And I would just uh, point you back. If sometimes when we read the Bible and we, we hear that and we go, that sounds so harsh or that sounds uh, uh, so exclusive, I would just remind you that this is what John is saying. Uh, Jesus taught the very same thing very clearly. If you go read in John chapter 8, 
when they're denying that he is God and who he is and what he's telling them, he says to the religious leaders, they say, we're sons of Abraham. And he says, no, you're sons of your father, the devil, because you don't recognize me. Jesus says the same thing. If you go read in John chapter 8, he divides the crowds very clearly. And what he says about the dividing line is what you make of who Jesus is and what he's done. That that's the dividing line of children of God versus children of the devil. And that's an inflammatory thing that's hard to hear. It's hard for our culture to hear. It's not only hard for our culture to hear, it's hard for John's culture to hear. Because if you look in verse 13, he says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And again, he divides it. And he makes it really clear. And so it's a difficult thing for us to wrestle with here about what exactly does that mean? Children of God versus children of the devil and that dividing line of being Jesus. And so I want us to think big picture for a second. How we get to that. How we understand what the Bible says. And, and in order to get that, you have to understand what the Bible says about sin and about death, uh, about the devil himself, who's a real person, who's a real thing, a real created being. It's not just an idea. And so I want us to think about that for just a second. Uh, I say this a lot if you've been at Church of the Apostles. You've probably heard me say this a whole lot. But I say it probably on average like every other week at least. But when we talk about sin, sin is ignoring God and the world He created. Our sin is rebelling against God and the world He created. And I say that because this is very important when we start to get to this kind of dividing line that it's talking about here. Sin is not what you and I think sin is. It's what God says it is. Because God is ultimate reality. He is the one that created and sustains all things. It is His world. And what He says is good is good. And what He says is bad is bad. And He is the dividing line. And so sin is defined by what God says. It's not us getting together as people and going, hey, we're all okay with this, whatever this may be. If God says it's sin, it's sin. He's the one that decides because it's His world. And that's an important distinction for us to get at. So sin is ignoring God and the world that He created. And we as people have all sinned. We've been born into sinfulness. Our our, our first descendants at the beginning of time sinned. They rebelled against God and then we are born into it. And so all of us live with this default to ignore God and the world He created. And we operate this way often. We start to think that we're the center of the world rather than God being the center of the world. Now I want to make that connection to why he says that we're children of the devil when that's the case. What we know in the Bible is that Lucifer was an angel, part of God's created realm, and he rebelled. And he said, I want the worship. I don't want it to be all about you. I want it to be for myself. And so he and a third of the angels were cast out of heaven because of their rebellion against God. And so in that, they seek to destroy God's good creation. They seek to tempt people into that. Think about the very first sin, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent shows up, who is Satan, we find out later in the Bible. And he says, well, did God really say that? Do you really need God to define these things for you? Couldn't you do that yourself? And so sin becomes this uh, deception that you can be the center of all things rather than God being the center of all things. And I want us to think of it that way as we think about children of God versus children of the devil 
kind of that dividing line being Jesus, and we'll talk about why in a moment, but just big picture is this. If you see that you're the center of your world and your life and everything under it, you're following your father, the devil. That's kind of the idea of what the Bible's talking about. You're making yourself and people in the created order over the creator, over the one who is the center of all things. And that's why Jesus spoke that way. You're following your father, the devil, because you don't see that I am God and you need me. You're not seeing that God is the center. You're placing yourself at the center. Do you follow? Right? So the dividing line is there. And that's what it's talking about, this fork in the road. And we could kind of summarize it that way. Do you see yourself as the center of all things or do you see God as the center of all things? And the way that you answer that and the way that you come to that is going to show you kind of your works and what you're following. And so I want us to think about that for just a moment, what that looks like. Uh, if we were to distill it down, just kind of in the world today, you can be following the works of the devil even while professing that you know God. I want you to think about that for just a second. It, it seems real obvious when we say atheist, right? I meet the guy in Rome and tells me, an atheist, I don't believe there's any God, it's just me. And you go, okay, well, he's ignoring God and the world he created. He says there is no God. He denies him completely. And we go, well, that's a clear division. He's not seeing God. So you'd say, yes, he's following himself or creation or whatever it is, but not God. But what about within religious people? Let's start with Christians. Let's not point the finger at any other religion. Let's just start with the church, with Christianity. I meet people regularly who say I'm a Christian. And I say, okay, well, tell me about that. What does that mean? And they start to lay out their resume. Well, I grew up in the church. And my uncle was a preacher. And I try to do my best. And I try to be a good father. And I try to be a good guy. And I go, okay, that's great. And then they say, and, and they'll say something like, and I hope I've done enough. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've said that. But I want you to think about what you're saying when you say that. You're saying my relationship with God is dependent on my uh, good works, how good of a person I am. And I'm trying to earn my way into God's good graces by being a good father or going to church or spending time with it, whatever it is. We have these checklists. And what they're saying is my relationship with God is dependent on me being at the very center of it and how good I am. They're following the works of the devil. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying they're worshiping the devil. I'm not saying they don't want to know God. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the work of the devil is to deceive you into thinking that you're the center of your life and that your relationship with God is dependent on you and what you do and who you are. That is a lie. That's not the truth. That's not the truth of the gospel. And every world religion is built around this premise. Uh, I'll use Islam as an example. Islam has the five pillars of Islam. Pray, fast, give alms, go to Mecca, uh, say that there's only one God, His name is Allah. Do those five things to the best of your ability for your entire life and maybe God will accept you into His good graces. The whole thing is pointed to what you do and how well you do it. And if you do it good enough, maybe God will accept you. You're the center. The same thing, if you start to look at all world religions, they're all built the same way. There is a great divide. 
There's something wrong. There's a disconnect between us and God. But the way to get there is you do these things. You follow these teachings. You meditate. You get better. You do this. And if you do enough, you'll get there. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Does it work? And the reason it doesn't work is you can never do enough to bridge that gap. And in every single one of those scenarios, you're the center. You're the very center of all of it. And that's not what the gospel is. Contrast that with what the gospel says. God created you. He made you in His image. He made you to be in relationship with Him. We have rebelled. We have sinned. We have not done that. We are no longer in perfect relationship with Him. So God says, I will do for you what you can never do. Jesus says, I will come and I will live the perfect life that you haven't lived and I will die the death that you deserve and I will make a way for you to be brought back into this perfect relationship and every single part of it is due to God's grace and what He has done. You're not the sinner. And when you start to see that, it transforms the way you see everything. It transforms the way you read the Bible. Is the Bible really about you or is the Bible about God and what He's trying to do to bring His people back to Himself through what Jesus has done? If you're unsure, it's the second. It's about Jesus. And it's about what Jesus has come to do. It's about Jesus' faithfulness. It's about God's love and His pursuing you and His doing. It's not about you, it's about Him. And that's the division. That's the dividing line. Is it about us or is it about God? And that's what John is saying. You can tell child of the devil versus child of God based on the way you see that. It's either all God and what He's done or it's you. And the the truth is, even as believers, and this is all of us, point the finger at myself first. In our sinfulness, we want to make it about us. Even in a saving relationship with Jesus, I wake up each day and I'm tempted in the sinful nature of myself to make it about me. And we all do this. And so it's a constant struggle that we're seeking to grow in the reality of who we are and what God has done for us. And that's what John keeps talking about. And so I want us to think about what does your life say about the way you embrace? Is it more about you or is it more about God and what he's done? And I want us to think about that. So look at what he says again in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so notice what he says there. He kind of alerts us of two marks that help us to see if you're living as a child of God or a child of the devil. And he says the one who practices righteousness and loves others. And so I want you to think about in the context of what he's saying. This is why it's important when we read our Bible that the context is taken into account. That we don't just pick verses out and take them in isolation and then misapply what it says. So I'll give you a good example right here as he's talking about the context of this letter when he says it's evident who are the children of God. They're practicing righteousness. We could go, well, see, it's the good people. It's the good people that are God's people. They're the ones that are saved because they're practicing righteousness and they're doing good. But you have to take what his whole argument is and everything he said to this point. Chapter 1, we're all sinners. We're all in desperate need for all have sinned. 
Right? He's showing us that. And he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You are not righteous. Jesus is righteous. That's why you desperately need a Savior. Chapter 2, he talks about the atonement and what Jesus has done. He's taken your sin. He's given you his perfect life. You are now righteous because of what Jesus has done. And so when he gets to this point in the book and he says the believer, the child of God is the one who practices righteousness. It's not that you're a good person so God saves you. Because you understand that it's Jesus' righteousness and he has saved you, you now begin to live that way. You live in light of who you now are in Jesus. You're practicing righteousness. You're going to get it wrong. There's going to be times where you completely blow it. But the evidence that you know Him and what He's done for you is your life begins to change. And you're not the same as you were yesterday or the day before. And over time, God's remaking you in His image. And your righteousness doesn't save you but your righteousness that is now growing is evidence that you're saved. Do you see the difference? And if you read through what John is saying all the way through 1 John, it is so clear that he's not saying you're saved by being a good person. He says your life begins to change because of what Jesus has done for you. And that's an important distinction. But then as we start to think about what does that actually look like? Because he says here it's evident who are the children of God. And then look at verse 11. He says, For this is the message that we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he just said a whole bunch there. He said a whole bunch about how do we discern what our life says about the way we're living. And he gives us some marks there that are real clear and helpful if we kind of wade our way through that. And so he says a lot, but I want you to think about what he says here. Verse 11, he says, you've heard this message from the beginning that we should love one another. And then he goes into this thing about we should not be like Cain who was the evil one and murdered his brother. So you've got to know your Bible a little bit to understand what he's saying. Cain was Adam and Eve's son who killed his brother Abel. Genesis chapter 4. You can go read that story. And what happened in that story, if you read it, is Cain and Abel both bring offerings before God. And God does not accept Cain's, but he accepts Abel's. And Cain's very upset at this. He's furious. Why did he take my brothers and not mine? And he's upset. And God comes to Cain and he says, why are you upset? Don't you know if you do your best, it'll be accepted. Bring your best and you're good. Trust me, just come to me that way. And I think part of what's happening in that story, and as John brings it into his argument here as he's talking about it, is one is accepted and one is not. And you go, well, why? And I think from what God says to Cain, the answer was, Abel was bringing his best. He was coming before the Lord in a heart of worship of, I want to offer you the best of all that I have. Cain was going through the motions a little bit. Yeah, we make sacrifices because that's what we're supposed to do, so that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it, and then God's upset and he's mad. It's not a heart of worship for who God is, but it's I'm doing this because I have to do this. 
And so when we start to think about what does this look like, there's a couple things I want you to consider. And the first one is this. God is concerned about your heart. It's not just outward compliance, right? So he says, the children of God are the ones that practice righteousness. And so we can hear that and go, okay, well, to be a child of God, I need to make my checklist. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to look for a place to volunteer my time. I'm going to show up at worship. I'm going to do those things and keep my checklist. Ah, I'm a children, uh, a child of God. But the Bible never talks that way. The Bible talks about God wanting your heart, the entirety of your being and who you are, and to be a praise and worship that's an overflow of your heart, not an outward compliance. It's not just that. Jesus will say this over and over and over again throughout his ministry. Some of his most pointed critique were to the religious leaders of the day, and he would say things like, you profess me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Or maybe you remember he turns and he says to the religious leaders, you are like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, you've been all cleaned up, but you're dead on the inside. Or he talks about the way we pray. Don't go out and pray loud prayers that are full of words and say all these things so people will see you go in your closet and you seek my face. God wants your heart. He wants the entirety of your being, not just outward compliance. And I think that's what was happening with Cain and Abel. Abel was bringing the best he had. And he wanted to offer it to God and Cain was going through the motions. And then Cain ends up murdering his brother. Why? Because he wasn't truly loving his brother. And I want you to think about why. So put all this together, what he's saying. Go back to uh, verse 15. He says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Make the connection of all this. Why he brings Cain into it. Why he's talking about loving your brother. Why he's calling us murderers if you do not love your brother. I think he gets that from Jesus too. And go read that Matthew chapter 5 Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard it said, uh, don't murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, if you don't love those people around you, you're doing it already. He's again bringing it back to the heart issue, not just the outward compliance. And he's pointing those things out. And so he's talking about that. But I want you to think about the connection here, what's going on in someone like Cain's heart that he would kill his brother. Very literally murder his brother. When we approach God by what we do, it's me at the center. I'm a good person. I've done enough. God will accept me. When I operate that way, I'm operating with me in the center always, and it leads me to comparing against other people. You follow? If I'm good with God by how good I am, and it's kind of a sliding scale because I'm not perfect, none of us are, so it would have to be a sliding scale if that's true, then it helps me in my sinfulness to look down on the people that I feel like aren't doing as good as I am. You ever do that? I'm messed up, but I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there. You ever done that? I wouldn't point at you, Spencer. So just That guy over there. <laughs> right? Have you ever done that? We think that way. We kind of do that in our heart. It's the sinfulness of our heart that begins to do that because we've placed ourselves at the center. And we think that our relationship with God is based on our good works versus what God has done for us. And so it leads to these kinds of things. And instead of loving others, what happens is we start to look down on others. 
We seek righteousness as a child of the devil by making comparisons against other people rather than being free to love them because our love with God, our relationship with God is secure because of what Jesus has done. Do you see how that goes together? It leads me in this thing that I go, oh, look at that guy. Or look at that girl. I can't believe, right? It's a good check in your own heart when we start to go there. We do this a lot in our culture. You see it all around us. We put people kind of into camps. Say things like, those people, they're what's wrong with this country. Or we do it within the church. Those people, their theology is all messed up and those people are wrong. And we've got the right way. And as soon as we do that, part of the heart issue is we're making our relationship with God based on our performance and what we've done rather than what Jesus has done. And that is a vicious cycle when we get into that. And we start to operate that way. And as we're operating that way and we're seeing things like that, it leads us to looking down on others and making comparisons. And guess what? When you're judging other people in those ways, it's really hard to love them. When it's like they're what's wrong with everything. It's really difficult to actually love those people. And I think that's what John is driving at when he uses this example of Cain and Abel. When he says it's not like that. Don't be like that. We're called to love one another. And he's pointing us to the the heart of the gospel. See, instead of when we put ourselves at the center and we start to make comparisons, instead of seeing it through a gospel lens. And so not only is it a heart issue, but we must love others And it truly has to come from a place that's born out of the gospel, not because I'm a good person. Do you see? The gospel says that I am more sinful than I ever dared imagine, but I am more loved and accepted than I ever could hope, and it's all because of what Jesus has done. And so when I start to go to that place of I can't believe that person, the gospel breaks in. Right? You Titus 3 it. You know what Titus 3 says? I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up. Paul writes in Titus 3, Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear what he's saying? As soon as you start to go to that place, that you're looking down on other people, and I can't believe those people, and I wish they weren't like that, and all those things, Paul says you remember that you are the exact same, but for the grace of God. He says you were just like that. And then the grace of God broke into your life and He saved you by no doing of your own, but by His grace. And as soon as you start to think that way, you're missing the reality that you are saved by what Jesus has done and not what you're doing. If your life is now better and you're starting to follow God and you're practicing righteousness, that is because of the grace of God in your life. Not because you're so much better. It's because God has been incredibly gracious to you. And he says, you go back to that. And that's exactly what John says here. And so as we start to kind of wrap this whole thing up, to truly love others in the way God has called us to, look at what he says. He says, love one another 
Verse 15, he talks about everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So how do we grow into it? You go, man, I'm alerted to the ways in which I'm not loving others. When I'm comparing and when I'm looking down, you go, ah, I do that. Going back to my sinful nature, right? Remember the whole of this book. Let's not walk in the darkness, let's walk in the light. Confess your sins and He cleanse you of your sins. We start to do that and we're alerted to it. So how do we grow in it? He tells you, verse 16, by this we know love. You can't love others if you don't know what love is. He says, by this we know love that He, talking about Jesus, laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. Do you hear what he's saying? Just the gospel is the answer because the gospel rescues you from you. You're not the sinner. And we all want to think that over and over. Look at how good I am and look at what I did and I'm not like that person. But when the gospel comes in, it goes, you are a desperate sinner that can't save yourself. And the only answer is what Jesus has done for you and God rescues you from you. And He shines a light into your life. That's what Titus 3 says. The washing of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes in and you go, oh my God, I am so sinful. It's insane to think that I could earn my way to God. Every day I ignore Him. Every day I go back to sinful, stupid things and I do it over and over. But the Gospel comes and it says, that's right, and I love you and I have done everything you can't do for you. And so He saves us. By grace, through faith, and what Christ has done, and nothing else. And this is what happens. You understand what love is. By the grace of God. It's not what you do, it's what Jesus has done. You go, oh, thank you, God. If it was dependent on me, I'd be hopelessly lost. And you know what that does? For loving others, every single person you see, no matter how far they may be from God, you know, they desperately need the gospel. They desperately need Jesus. And the reason I know they desperately need Jesus is because I desperately need Jesus. And it's radically humbling. But at the same time, it's radically freeing because you can now walk out in the light and admit that you're messed up. I don't have it together. But thankfully, that's why Jesus has come and done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And it's then and only then that we start to walk in the light as children of God. The more we see that, the more fully we are functioning that you are a beloved child of God and it's not by your performance, it's by what Jesus has done for you the more radically it will shape your life and the more we will continue to seek after Him. It's the only way that it works. And so I say this frequently, and I hope you are used to that, but Jesus is the answer. The Gospel, the good news that God has done for us, what we can never do for ourselves, is the answer. So we say here we want to be Gospel fluent. We want to be a Gospel-centered church. When we say those things, that's because the answer to all of these issues is more fully understanding the gospel. 
It's not we move, oh, I got that, now I move on. No, I don't. I need to hear it every single day. That is all what Jesus has done, and I rest in that, and that changes my life. Experiencing the grace of God is how that happens. It's the only way that we truly love others. We'll pick up with that next week because he says a lot more about what that looks like as we begin to live out of that. But let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the reality of the truth of who you are. That despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion, despite all the ways that we seek uh, to place our identity in other things that you pursue us and you love us, that you continue to bring us out into the light where our sin gets revealed, but as it gets revealed, you point us more fully to the beauty of your grace and the way you saved us, and so we simply say thank you. I pray for each person here today as we look at our lives and what it says about who we are, that in the areas where we're not completely following you, I pray that we would see so clearly the reality of what you've done for us in Jesus that we could step into the light that we would truly believe what you tell us, that when we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and you forgive us and you cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so we thank you. We pray that each day that we would seek to follow you more fully, making it all about you. As John the Baptist says, that we would decrease, that you would increase, that we would see you all the more clearly in everything as we go, and we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.